Let me invite you to turn in your Bible to the book of Acts, chapter 4, where we pick it up in verse 32. And as you're turning there, uh, I want you to think about something with me. Uh, Something that uh, is important for us to remember, but is easy for us to forget, especially when we are thinking about the early church here in the book of Acts. And that is this. There are no perfect churches. There are healthy and unhealthy churches. There are faithful and unfaithful churches. There are even living and dead churches, right? There's a a letter in the book of Revelation to a church that Jesus says, you have the reputation of being alive, right? But you're dead. But there are not perfect and imperfect churches. There are only imperfect churches. And it's easy to look back on the church in the book of Acts and idealize it as a perfect church. Their boldness, their willingness to suffer, their rich fellowship, people getting saved all the time. It's easy to say, if only we could get back to that. If only we could be like the early church, then... You know, maybe all of our problems and difficulties and things would just go away if we could recapture whatever it was they had. But that only works if you are looking at the church in Acts from a distance and maybe squinting a little bit. As if you look closely, it is very clear that even this good, healthy Church in Jerusalem in the early chapters of Acts was far from perfect. They had their fair share of problems. Now, that's not to say that there's nothing we can learn from this church. Clearly, there is plenty we can learn from it. There are things that they did well that we would do well to imitate. But we can also learn from their mistakes and from the fact that even when things were going well, there were still significant problems in their midst. When problems crop up in churches, as they inevitably do, one of the questions that we inevitably ask is, are we doing something wrong? Are we not as healthy of a church as we thought we were? And those aren't bad questions to ask, so long as we remember that every church, no matter how healthy, is going to encounter problems and difficulties, sometimes even problems of a scandalous nature, like we're going to see in Acts this morning. So let me look, uh, let's look together at Acts chapter 4, we're going to begin in verse 32, And from verse 32 to verse 37, we're going to see some good things going on in the church. Things that are worthy of imitation. But then we're going to keep reading into chapter 5, down to verse 11 of Acts chapter 5. And in those 11 verses of Acts chapter 5, we're going to see the scandalous thing that happened in the early church and what the result of it was. So let me start reading for us in Acts 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. 
And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold... Was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, or excuse me, to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So we begin with some characteristics of this early church in Jerusalem that are worthy of imitation. That we ought to uh, desire to see at work and active in any church, and of course, in our own church. The first thing that we see in verse 32 is that this was a united church. It says the full number of those who had believed. So we don't have like multiple churches yet, right? Because the gospel is just beginning to take root in Jerusalem. and, And as the story unfolds, the church is going to spread out of Jerusalem to other places as well. But now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Their unity was not just that they happened to show up at the same place on the same day every week to worship. They had a genuine love for one another. They had a shared faith that bonded them together. And it was a a spiritual reality. And by that I mean a, a work of the Holy Spirit that united them heart and soul. When Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 that we ought to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, this church was experiencing experiencing that kind of unity. A Spirit-given, a Spirit-wrought unity that uh, brought them together in the name of Jesus 
and filled them with love not only for the Lord, but also for one another. And that unity and that love spilled over into generosity. It was a generous church. He says not only were they of one heart and soul, but he also says in verse 32 that no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So they had open hearts toward one another, not only in terms of their love for one another, not only their their unity together as a church, but that also meant they had open hearts in terms of their, their generosity toward one another. So if you had a need and I had the ability to meet it, you didn't need to worry about it. This is not some kind of like forced equality or some sort of compulsive, everybody has to put all their stuff in a common pot. This, this was a voluntary generosity that was um, rich in this church. So we, we see more specifically what this looked like in verse 34 and 35. He says, um, or should we, 33, or yeah, 34 and 35. There was not a needy person among them. Why? For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. So everyone in that church had their needs met because those who had more than they needed would give right to the church, to the apostles. They'd sell something or whatever, bring it to the apostles and say, you guys do with this. However you see fit, whatever needs to be done. And so whoever was in need, those needs would be met through the generosity of the members of this church. Now, similarly, I have, I have no doubt that if someone in this church family uh, experienced some kind of tragedy where they all of a sudden lost everything. I have no doubt that the outpouring of food and clothing and provision of all kinds, loan you a car, give you a place to sleep, whatever. I have no doubt that that need would be met in abundance immediately. That's the kind of generosity that a loving, united church is willing and ready to pour out whenever there's somebody among them who's in need. That's what was happening in this church in Jerusalem, and that's what happens in every healthy, loving, united church. We also see in verse 33 that there was powerful preaching in this church. It says, With great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. When when they say that they were testifying to the resurrection of Jesus, that doesn't mean the resurrection is the only thing they were talking about. The resurrection is just sort of the capstone of the whole gospel story. That Jesus is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. That He's come. That He died. That He took our place. That He took our sin. That was God's plan. God sent Him for that purpose. And God raised him up. And now everyone who turns from their sin and trusts in Jesus, they get welcomed into the kingdom of God. They're adopted into the family of God. They are washed clean of their sin and and brought into fellowship with God himself. They were preaching that powerfully. And that's what every faithful church is preaching, right? The death and resurrection of Jesus, the free offer of salvation to everybody who turns to Jesus in faith. That's what we preach. That's what they preach. That has not changed in 2,000 years. But it also says at the end of verse 33, that great grace was upon them all. What does that mean, that great 
grace was upon them all. Well, if it's upon them, that means it came from outside of them, right? This is the grace of God that has been poured out upon them. And how do, how do you know that there's great grace upon them? Well, you know it because the grace of God is powerful. The grace of God transforms. The grace of God changes people. So that when God's grace is upon you, people can see the evidence. They can see the fruit. People can see that God was at work in this church and through this church, that His grace was being showered upon this church. It was changing these people, and people could see it. None of this, the generosity, the unity, the grace, the power, none of that has to be unique to this church at this period of time in the book of Acts. Those are things that every church should strive to be and pray to be. Pray to be and strive to be united in heart and soul. Pray to be and strive to be generous to one another. Pray for and strive for powerful preaching by the power of the Spirit of God, which, by the way, that's what Jesus had promised His disciples, right, in Acts 1.8. I will pour out My Spirit, right, and you will receive power, and you'll be My witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Powerful preaching, and pray for and strive for to be a people who are, uh, you pray to be, to be uh, showered by the grace of God, and then strive to be a people who are working out our salvation, like Philippians 2 says, so that people can see the way the grace of God is at work among us, and in us, and upon us. So, that's the, the positive picture of the church. That's almost an idyllic picture of the early church. If we stopped there, we think, man, that's, that's the ideal. That's the goal. They didn't have any problems. Everything was great. Uh, what would it be like to be in a church like that with no problems? But that's not where the story stops. Right? It gives us a specific example of a person who uh, was generous, who embodied this spirit of generosity that uh, it's been describing in general terms. And then it's going to describe a couple of people who sought to take advantage of what was going on in the church. And, uh, well, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. We'll get to that in just a moment. It tells us about Barnabas in verse 36 and 37. You, you know Barnabas because he was a friend of Paul's, right? He traveled with Paul. Uh, Barnabas means son of encouragement. He was apparently a very encouraging guy. And uh, he certainly encouraged Paul and encouraged the church and, and sought to build up the church. But he shows up for the first time all the way back here in chapter 4. He's a part of the church here in Jerusalem. And he is one of the people who did what Luke has been just telling us about, that he sold a piece of property, he brought the proceeds to the apostles, laid it at their feet, right, so that it could be distributed to those who were in need. That's what people were doing, and Barnabas was one of those who did that. But this is one of those places in your Bible where the chapter numbers really get in the way. Right now... Those chapter numbers, they're not an original part of the Bible. They were added later, and they're very helpful. right? So I don't have to say, okay, open to Acts, turn, I don't know, four or five pages, and look for the name Barnabas. See if you can find it. right? That would be a lot tougher than turn to Acts chapter 4, turn to Acts chapter 5. They're really helpful, but sometimes they get in the way 
Because Luke is still telling us the same story. And the story of Ananias and Sapphira comes as a contrast to what he just told us about the spirit of the church as a whole and the example of Barnabas in particular. Now he tells us about Ananias and Sapphira who also sold a piece of property but for different reasons, with different motivations and with a very different result. Verse 1 and 2 of chapter 5 says that Ananias and Sapphira they sold a piece of property but they kept back some of the money. And Sapphira, his wife, she knew what he was doing. He, took, he kept back some of that money. And it says at the end of verse 2 that he brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, when Peter responds to this, we're going to see that the problem is not that Ananias didn't give all of it. It's what he was pretending to do versus what he really did. Right, so to sell the land, he's free to do that. To give part of the money, he's free to do that. But what he does is he gives the money pretending he's giving all of it, which is, of course, deceitful. And Peter calls him out on it. So verse 3, it says, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. Now, if that's all you read, you might think, well, can't he sell the whole piece of property and just give part of it? Yes, he could have. Because look at what he says in verse 4. While it remained unsold, Peter says, did it not remain your own? So this is not, again, this is not forced generosity. This is not some... A, Tempt at forced equality. Everybody who has land has to sell it, and then we'll split the pot evenly. That's not what they're doing. He, they didn't abolish private property, anything like that, right? He, the land was his. As long as he didn't sell it, it was his. He, that's fine. And then he says, and after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Meaning after you sold it, you could have done with it whatever you wanted. You could have kept the money. You could have given us some of the money. You could have given us all the money. Any of those options will be fine, and other ones besides. But, he says, he goes on, Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So, what are Ananias and Sapphira actually doing? What is the problem? What is the sin? It's not that the check they wrote to the church wasn't big enough. It's not that they were forced. If you sell any property, you have to give all the money to the church. That's not what was going on. What Ananias and Sapphira apparently did was this. They said, let's sell a piece of property. And, you know, word gets around about how much you sell it for, right? Let's sell a piece of property. And then let's bring part of the money to the church like everybody's been doing. They've been selling their property. Bring it to the church. Probably, it's sort of, you know, use your imagination, read between the lines here, right? People's reputations being increased. Wow, that guy's so generous. He sold property. Ananias and Sapphira are like, we want some of that. We want some of that increased reputation for godliness and generosity. But we also like money a lot. So let's sell this piece of property. Let's give some of it to the church. But we'll say we're giving all of it to the church while we keep some of it back for ourselves. 
So we'll have the reputation for being generous while still having the money. That's what they were trying to do. And that's what Peter saw through, and that's what Peter rebuked them for. And that's why Peter says that they are lying to the Holy Spirit. And since the Holy Spirit is God, he says also you're lying to God. He says you're not lying even to man, but to God. It's not that you've lied to Peter. That's not the problem. The problem is you've lied to God. In what way is he lying to God? Well, first of all, the church doesn't belong to Peter. It belongs to God. If you're lying to the church and the leaders of the church, ultimately you're lying to God. Also, Peter, as an apostle, was chosen by Jesus, who is God, to represent him and speak for him. So lying to an apostle is tantamount to lying to God. And the Bible says that all sin is ultimately against God. In Isaiah 51, verse 4, David, who has just sinned against Bathsheba and sinned against her husband by sending him into battle to get killed, says in the wake of that to God, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Is he saying, I didn't sin against Bathsheba? I didn't sin against Uriah? No, he's saying the chief person he has sinned against is not Bathsheba, is not Uriah, is ultimately God himself. All sin is ultimately against God because it's God's law that we're breaking. It's God's character that we are acting contrary to. So all of our sin is ultimately toward God, against God. So he says to Ananias, you have not lied to man, but to God. So what Ananias seems to be doing here is a form of what Jesus warned against in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. Remember when Jesus warned us against practicing our righteousness before men in order to be seen by them? And he gives three examples there in Matthew 6. An example related to giving, an example related to prayer, and an example related to fasting. In the example related to giving, here's what Jesus says in Matthew 6. He says, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. What is Jesus warning against? He's warning against people who, when they give to God, what they really want is not God's approval, but man's approval, man's praise. They want people to see them give. They want people to think, man, that guy is so generous. Do you see the size of the check he wrote? Do you see, you know... Uh, how much he put in the offering plate or whatever. They, they want that praise. They want that reputation. With Ananias and Sapphira, they seem to be doing something similar, except in this instance, they not only want the praise and the reputation, they want it without even giving all the money. It's even worse than what Jesus was rebuking the hypocrites for in, Acts, or to be in Matthew chapter 6. They want the praise and the reputation, and they also want to keep some of the money back for themselves, pretending to give more than they really did. Jesus warns us against giving publicly to be praised by others, and the story of Ananias and Sapphira warns us about lying about how much we give. What happened? 
to Ananias and Sapphira. It's pretty dramatic. It's pretty drastic. Verse 5 says, When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. He died right there. The judgment of God fell upon him. Later, they, they buried Ananias. Sapphira was not there at the time. She doesn't get word about what's happened. She comes several hours later back to the church, and Peter questions her. See if she's in on it. See if she will tell the truth or if she's going to lie. He asks, is this how much you sold the property for? And she says, it is. And then he says, verse 9, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. Now that sounds drastic. Remember, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. That's been the consequence for sin since the very beginning. When Adam, or Adam and Eve were told, if you eat from that tree, you will surely die. That's the consequence for sin. God does not owe us life, and one sin makes us worthy of death. But the free gift of God, the Bible says, is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, what happened when Ananias and Sapphira were struck down, this is not the kind of thing that stays a secret. This is the kind of thing that word gets out about pretty quick. Not that they were trying to keep it secret, they weren't. People hear about this kind of stuff, right? This is what Ananias and Sapphira did is scandalous, is terrible, right? But what God, the judgment that God brought down on Ananias and Sapphira brought about a response, a healthy response in the people who heard about it. Verse um, verse, uh, 11, at the end of our passage, says, Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Back in verse 5, at the end of that verse, it said, Great fear came upon all who heard of it. Now, there's different kinds of fear, right? There's good fear and there's bad fear. This, I think, is talking about a healthy fear, in particular, a healthy fear of the Lord. Because when it says that the church, in verse 11, great fear came upon the whole church, what kind of fear is it good for the church to experience? It's not good for us to live lives cowering in fear, fear of the world, fear of what people are going to think about us, fear of what people are going to do to us. That's not what this is talking about. They didn't respond this way. They didn't respond in fear back in chapter 4 when the apostles had been arrested and persecuted and threatened. They responded with boldness and prayer. When God strikes down two people that lied to him, though, they do respond in fear. Why? Because Jesus told the disciples in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, fear God. Don't fear man, but fear God. Remember that God is not like you. Remember that God is holy. That God is just. That God is righteous. That God does not tolerate sin. That God does not take sin lightly. 
Now, does he always strike down anybody who sins against him like Ananias and Sapphira did? No, and the population would be a whole lot smaller if he did. We're grateful he doesn't. A lot of us wouldn't be here. God's merciful and gracious. But we ought not to presume on that mercy and grace. We ought to recognize that we have sinned against God, that we are worthy of His judgment, that we are worthy of death because of our sin, and recognize that we need God's grace, God's mercy, God's forgiveness. We ought to have a healthy fear of the Lord because a healthy fear of the Lord will keep us back from sin. If Ananias and Sapphira had been fearing the Lord, like the Bible says that we should, they would never have concocted this plan, much less gone through with it. Think about what you have to believe to go through with a plan like this. You have to believe that either God will not know what you're doing, or if he knows, he won't care enough to do anything about it. If you think God is watching, God knows, and I will have to give an account to God whether now or later, you're you're not going to take that kind of risk with this kind of plan. Ananias and Sapphira, at least at that moment, were not fearing God. The Bible says in Proverbs 14.7 that the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. If they had been fearing God, when this thought came into their mind, they would have turned away from it. Oh, that's not a good idea. We're going to end up dead if we do that. We're going to end up in trouble if we do that. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. If you fear God, it makes you want nothing to do with sin. So... If the story of Ananias and Sapphira stirs up a healthy fear in you, a healthy fear of God, a reminder that God could strike someone down if he chooses to for something like this. If it stirs that up in you, that's a good thing. We all need to rightly fear the Lord. Not a fear that keeps us away from God because we're afraid of what he's going to do. A fear that pushes us toward God because we don't want to do anything that would put us at odds with Him. We want to be near Him, so we're, we're afraid of doing anything against Him because we want to be with Him. So there's a, a reminder here of the need to fear the Lord, the need to take sin seriously, the need to remember that God is Aware of all that we do, He is here, He is present, and He does not take sin lightly. That's why He sent Jesus to pay for it. But we also need this story to remind us that there is no such thing as a perfect church. We aren't in Eden, neither were they. And we're not yet in the New Jerusalem, and neither were they. Even where there is great grace, terrible sin may rear its head. 
we need not be surprised by that. We also can't take it lightly when it does. When sin rears its ugly head, that doesn't mean the grace that's been at work isn't real. That doesn't mean that all the good things we thought were going on were just a sham, were just for show. No church can be certain that there's not an Ananias and Sapphira somewhere in their midst. No church can be certain that sin will not crop up in some unexpected and scandalous way. Because we live in a fallen world. And the hearts of men, even in the church, are prone to turn away from the Lord. And to desire other things. So this passage should humble us and encourage us. Warn us and exhort us. Seek to imitate the good things that were going on in this church. Continue to strive for, pray for unity. Right? This is a unified church. This is a church. I mean, the things that Luke says about what's going on in this church in Acts, I feel no hesitation about saying are happening in our church too. That we are united in heart and soul. Right? That, that this is a generous, giving church. Uh, that there's powerful preaching and teaching going on. That's not about me. That's just about like the gospel is central here. The word is central here. We have great Sunday school teachers. We, we are a church built around the testimony of Jesus from the word of God. And I think we have a healthy fear of the Lord. But looking at this passage this week, as I thought about how much the good things in this church uh, in Jerusalem are reflected in our church today, and that's, that's just God's grace. Right? That's just God's work. As I thought about that and then looked at what happened with Ananias and Sapphira, what I was, what I was concerned about, the, the, the concern it awakened in me is if sin crops up, and it, and it will, inevitably, we hope it's not as scandalous as Ananias and Sapphira's, But if and when sin crops up in our midst, and it will, I want us to be prepared knowing that that does not discount all the good things that are happening. Those things can happen at the same time. God can be at work in powerful and mighty ways, and people can still do foolish, sinful things. God can be knitting the hearts of a church together and growing that fellowship and His grace can be great upon us and someone in our midst can decide to do something foolish. Someone in our midst can slip out of fearing God and do something that dishonors the Lord. doesn't mean the grace isn't real. doesn't mean the unity is not real. doesn't mean the power of God in our midst is not real. It just means we all still need the grace of God. We all still need His help to fear Him and to follow Him. We still need His mercy and forgiveness because uh, every good thing that we receive and every good thing that we are enabled to do is ultimately a gift from Him. So let's pray and ask for His continued grace and help.